Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast. Today's episode is made possible by our friends at Sakara. If you're looking for a healthy meal delivery program, Sakara Life's signature nutrition program has some fans at Goop. At Sakara Life, they pride themselves on delivering ready-to-eat meals that are made with organic, plant-based ingredients. Their chef-crafted breakfasts, lunches, and dinners include a variety of superfoods, and they're always free of dairy, gluten, and refined sugar. Right now, Sakara is offering listeners 20% off your first order when you go to sakara.com slash goop. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash goop to get 20% off your first order. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Amy Crawford. Amy has spent the last 23 years working as a therapist, educator, and trauma recovery coach. She has worked with many different individuals and groups, including military veterans, service members, and their families. Amy defines trauma as any time our safety or connection to self or others feels compromised. This could be the result of a real or perceived threat to emotional, physical, spiritual, financial, or sexual safety. In her work, Amy has studied how trauma shapes all of us and how it manifests differently for each of us. The therapy model that Amy has found to be most healing is called internal family systems, which I've been exploring with her and have personally found to be immensely helpful. Amy explains how IFS posits that we're made up of many different parts. We talked about how to navigate those different parts of ourselves that have been wounded or ignored and how to recontextualize painful feelings. Amy also explains how to practice what's called the U-turn and why healing unfolds when you're willing to go inward and simply listen. So let's get to my chat with Amy Crawford. I'd love to start in just understanding a little bit about your background. And you say on your website that you came to trauma and addiction work because of your your own <laughs> addictions to perfection amongst other things, which is something that unbelievably I relate to. Yeah. See, isn't that funny? Isn't that crazy? So I would just love to hear a little bit about your background and how you, you came to this work. I think for me as Sally, with most therapists, we come into the work because of our own emotional wounds and damage, right? Thinking, oh my God, if I can heal somebody else, then I don't have to do the hard work myself. And maybe it works through osmosis. Well, I quickly found that that wasn't the case, but to back up, I was probably around 12 years old. In fact, when I realized I wanted to be a therapist. Yeah. And 
that partially was because of my own trauma history, but really large in part because of my mom, my mom had a really severe anxiety disorder when I was growing up deeply severe where she was not able to be emotionally or really physically present for a good part of growing up a couple of years. And back then no one knew what anxiety really was, you know, they thought, Oh, it's a vertigo or it's an inner ear thing, or it's this or that. And the other, how was it presenting itself through dizziness and almost like out of body experiences, feeling disconnected from fully being present sounds were really hard for her, really overstimulating where it was almost like she just had to lay down. She was just in this hyper aroused state constantly. And so to see her suffering and to have lost my mom for a period of my life, the way I got her back was through therapy. So she ended up finding a therapist after specialist, after specialist, UCLA is really what helped her. Doctors there were like, this is anxiety go into therapy, do some medication, do a medication regime. And so that's really when I was like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever. You can help people. Whoa. So yeah, when I was 12, that's when I decided I wanted to be a therapist. Unbeknownst in this journey, when I was a teenager, I had a therapist tell me, you don't want to be a therapist. That's a ridiculous job. So she's a therapist and she's like, don't do that. There's no money in it. Don't do it. I kind of actually took her advice for a while and thought I wanted to do physical therapy for a bit and then inevitably fell right back into going into therapy. I was pretty young when I actually graduated with my master's. It would have been around 23-ish, give or take, I think, when I finished with my master's in counseling in yeah, counseling psychology from Pacifica in Santa Barbara area. And so, yeah, so then that's when it just took off. And from that day forward, I really have focused on doing really intensive trauma work. And why trauma specifically? Like, how did you choose that as a focus? You know, I think it happened accidentally. If I'm being really honest, it truly happened almost by chance because that would have been, yeah, let's see what, 20 something years ago. Yeah. Late nineties right when the military PTSD thing was really like heightened and really becoming a focus, I fell into an internship helping reunite families of service members who had been deployed. Mm -hmm. And I saw the deep pain and the deep suffering and the deep trauma there. And so that had been my focus for quite some time as working with military population and PTSD. And it has since then really blossomed into working with all of us, because we all, because we all have trauma, none of us are exempt. And so, yeah, so that's, that was kind of the path that my career took is falling into the trauma work and finding a really deep comfort with it. In all honesty, I found comfort in that darkness, strangely, where I didn't feel like I had to turn the lights on to make it better. I could just really hold the space for the pain And yeah, strangely felt really comfortable there. And that's just kind of where I've stayed. Yeah. It's interesting. You touched on something around trauma. And I think what's changing in the culture is the idea that all of us do, in fact, Mm -hmm. experience some kind of trauma. You know, when 
when I started to contemplate this in my own life, it was like, no, but you know, I'm not a veteran. I, I, I wasn't in the tower on nine 11, like that's trauma, you know? So how do you differentiate? Like, is there a spectrum of trauma or. So it depends who you talk to, but since you're talking to me, I'm going to give you my, my opinion. <laughs> and as you know, I'm opinionated. So there's ample opinions that'll be shared. I'm sure tonight. So how I define trauma is any real or perceived threat to emotional, physical, spiritual, financial, or sexual safety. So anytime our safety or connection to self or others feels compromised, I define that as trauma. Mm -hmm. Now in the trauma field, there's, you know, this whole thing about capital, you know, big T trauma, little T trauma. I personally don't think that that's a thing. Why? Because, Because I... And again, having worked with clients for over 20 years in this field, some of the non-typical traumas can be just as damaging to someone's system as some of your bigger traumas that society really kind of holds up, right? There are lots of things that qualify someone for trauma to have, you know, to be a trauma survivor the most significant trauma occurs in relationship, feeling unsafe emotionally in relationship with someone is a catastrophic trauma to someone's internal system. And that can pave the way for them throughout the rest of their life. And that doesn't look like rape or combat or being a first responder. And those are all traumas too. And I'm not minimizing those. It's just, I think sometimes those of us who have survived what society has deemed less traumatic, we have this imaginary yardstick that my trauma can't be as bad as that. I wasn't in combat. My trauma can't be as bad as that. When in reality, you know, not feeling safe in relationship or having a safe attachment point as a child is one of the most damaging and detrimental traumas that someone can endure. And so that, that's why I don't do right. big and little T trauma. We'll get right back to the chat. Each January, our food director, Caitlin O'Malley, puts together a five-day detox and meal plan. A lot of us do the annual detox together every year. Caitlin comes through with new, healthy, and creative recipes that are a pleasure to cook and eat. At Sakara Life, their mission is to make it easy to get that kind of nutritious food all year long. Their best-selling signature nutrition program delivers prepared, organic, plant-based meals straight to your door. It's a simple way to make sure you're getting a variety of nutrients every day without all the prep. Their menu changes weekly, and you can choose between two, three, or five days of meals. Along with their meal program, Sakara also delivers functional products and wellness essentials. The Sakara shop is stocked with plant protein bars, teas, and their newest snack, the Super Seed and Nut Blends. To try it out, head to Sakara's site. Right now they're offering 20% off your order. Just go to sakara.com slash goop. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash goop to get 20% off your first order. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What is the chain of events that happens when somebody is traumatized, either, you know, chronically over a long period of time and maybe less acutely, or 
And is that the same as an acute massive, like one incident trauma? Like is what happens to the body and, and heart and soul the same? And what happens? So it often depends on the person and the way their system interprets the traumatic event. So some people can endure very chronic, frequent bouts of trauma and manage it differently, depending upon how their system finds meaning from it and or the support they have externally, as well as their access to kind of what in IFS, we call that self-energy, this bigger than us inherent capacity to heal in spite of our traumas. So it's a little bit complicated, but generally speaking, what happens is a traumatic event occurs and it often ends up getting stored in our limbic system, most commonly our amygdala. And we end up, the amygdala, I kind of use this analogy as like a Rolodex, mm-hmm. kind of the warehouse or the Rolodex of all the bad things that happen. What are the symptoms then of that? Like how does experiencing trauma start to impact the way that somebody navigates through the world or how they relate to themselves? So your classic symptoms, if you will, of PTSD, there are 20 of them in that diagnostic manual that we as therapists, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, et cetera, use, there are 20 symptoms. In order to meet the criteria for that diagnosis, you just need to have six of the 20. They fall into four different symptom families. And again, I'm going to share the diagnostic criteria, and then I'll go into how I also think it manifests in more subtle ways. Mm-hmm. So obvious. So one of the symptom families is what we call intrusion. And that is when someone starts remembering their events, having memories, flashbacks, nightmares, memories, where they just start randomly thinking of their experiences. Okay. So those are some of the symptoms that fall within there. Another symptom family is avoidance. That's probably one of the largest that we experience because who, in the you don't world? say, you don't know, say, right? Yeah, right. Like, you know, avoidance, don't think about it. Don't talk about it. Let's pretend it didn't happen. Let's put it in a pretty little box over here. If I don't think about it, it might just go away, which isn't the case. And, you know, and that often that symptom family manifests through as Brene Brown likes to say, you know, pleasing, perfecting, performing, pretending, right? That's where we hustle, we perfect, we, you know, do all those sorts of behavioral manifestations to help us avoid, right? To not feel what we're feeling or think about it or, you know, to stay away from it. Another criteria for PTSD classical per the DSM is negative alterations in cognitions and mood. That's a really fancy way of saying Symptoms of depression, really feeling flat, kind of apathetic, meh, having a loss of interest, having negative beliefs about yourself, the world and others. And then lastly, there's the symptom family that we consider to be arousal, which is more of your anxious, panicky type of symptoms, insomnia, panic, hypervigilance, feeling jumpy. That symptom family is really your stereotypical you know, I, as you're familiar, that window tolerance element of hyper aroused mm-hmm. where we are in that like really up state in that category is also reckless behaviors, which I think is really interesting because it's not uncommon for individuals who have trauma to engage in reckless behaviors as a means of helping their 
system almost self-soothe, to be honest. How does that work actually? That's where it gets a little um, complicated and exciting for me because that's where I get to help clients navigate their system and the parts of them to understand the positive intention as to why they're engaging in those. Because for certain people, it may be different. For some people, it may look more like I'm engaging in this. And again, consciously, they may not know this until we start peeling you know, peeling it back. But a lot of these parts, these extreme parts that are very reactive and don't really think, but just engage mm-hmm. in behaviors, a lot of times it's a means of power and control, like you're suggesting, right? Like as trauma survivors, we're oftentimes grappling with trying to find control because we have felt helpless. And mm-hmm. so a lot of our internal system is often orienting towards ways to yes, find more worth and or find power and control. And we're usually doing that externally outside of ourselves, which, yeah. So like, what is the psyche doing by expressing symptoms? What does it hope the outcome will be? Like, why, did, why is it using symptoms as a vehicle? Well, I believe that these parts of us are showing symptoms to help try to give us some form of safety. They're trying to protect our system by whatever means necessary. And so they show up in different ways, all as a means of orienting themselves to protect that wound from not happening again. So let's take the part of you that continues to have those intrusive memories that really is focused on, you know, if someone had, you know, intrusive memories, I would want to really get to know what's going on with that part and what's their fear if they were not to have those memories. And what I have historically found, and again, this isn't always the case, and it has presented itself with some consistency, is that a lot of times, say a part that finds comfort, if you will, strangely, in having these reoccurring memories, its fear is if I don't, we might forget, and it could happen again. So it's not that we're just punishing ourselves. It's like a part of a survival mechanism. It could be both depending right. on the system, right? Mm. You know, for some, for some individuals, and I can use the case of like rape survivors, sometimes their system orients towards replaying these events as a means of punishing themselves because they feel they deserve it because other parts of them think they're to blame. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it can be, it can be in a, I might sound like I'm being dodgy with my answers. No. It's just, it, it can be fairly complicated because it is so individualized based on how a human system has oriented itself towards the trauma. And everybody's completely different. Is that what you mean? I, I think everybody's completely different. And what I feel very confident in is that all of us are craving love, connection, and safety. And trauma essentially rocks us at the core of all three of those things. And so once that happens, our system often can act very incongruent with who we really are as a means with a very positive intention, but as a means of truly trying to keep us alive. And then that's often where we have this, what we call polarization internally, Mm -hmm. where we have one part acting in a certain way. And then we have another part of us that feels really strongly against that. And then there's shame or guilt and you know, that internal battle that a lot of us often feel, you know, where it's like, we do something. And then we have another part that we're like, what are you doing? That was stupid. That's not who you are. Mm -hmm. 
and then it creates shame and then there's this whole, yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue for me to ask you about internal family systems or IFS as you have referred to it as, which is kind of how you orient your, your practice. Is that fair to say? Yeah, very much so. I orient my practice that way and really my life. So Dick Schwartz, the founder of IFS, stumbled into this model decades ago when he was working with some really hard clients with very extreme behaviors, in particular eating disorders. And what he found out is classically, most of us as therapists are trained to change those behaviors, get those behaviors to stop, right? Those really risky, high-risk, dangerous behaviors usually terrify the bejesus out of therapist, right? We're like, oh my gosh, liability and safety and all these things, right? We freak out. And so as most therapists being classically trained, he was, you know, using the models in which he was fluent in and really trying to communicate with like, you don't need to have an eating disorder, things of that sort. And what he found is that in that sort of dialogue, those behaviors actually worsened. (laughs) They didn't get better. They worsened. And so he started getting pretty creative and really curious and changed his methodology entirely. And what he ended up stumbling upon is this theory that we as humans have a multiplicity, meaning we have parts of ourselves. We have parts of ourselves that show up in certain capacities throughout our life at different times based on need, based on all sorts of variables. And that when we actually start to pay attention to these parts of ourselves, they lessen. These parts of us are really like little personalities, really. And that usually freaks people out. And I even saw you kind of catching yourself being like, yeah, it sounds like multiple personalities. (laughs) And people get a little wiggy about that, understandably. And at the end of the day, We all have different parts of us that show up differently as we orient through our life. Mm. And so what has been found through this, through research, IFS is an evidence-based practice. What has been found is that when we actually begin to connect with these parts of ourselves and we give them the rightful attention that they so desperately need and really deserve, we can then change the relationship in how they show up and how they manifest. And they do not need to show up in these extreme roles anymore because what ends up happening again, kind of the cliff notes version of it all is what happens is as we live, we encounter traumas, whether big, small, whatever, you know, again, going back to that, that philosophy Mm -hmm. that we are in relationship, we have a wound, our system, if that wound is not met safely, it may end up exiling a part of us that got hurt in that event or experience. And then we have these other parts of ourselves called protectors that orient themselves to that wound, almost as very loyal warriors Mm. to do whatever necessary to protect themselves, to protect. Can you give me an example of that? Something that you've seen, you know, in your practice. I can give you an example for me. I was, again, my father, phenomenal man, had very high expectations, which 
I have a lot of assets and gifts that have been given to me as a result of that. And I have also taken on a burden, a very young part of me created a narrative that I had to be perfect. A very young part of me felt she wasn't good enough just as she was. And so that really, really young little girl who never quite felt good enough has this whole big, beautiful posse of warriors who have shown up. One is perfectionism. One is an undying work ethic so much so that I can't stop, that it's really hard for me to sit down and enjoy a magazine, for instance, because that feels gluttonous to me, if you will, and like too privileged. There's also been other parts of me that have oriented to that wound to do whatever necessary to truly help that little girl feel safe. You know, I have two PhDs. My, those, those parts of me are why I have those PhDs. Granted, I'm so grateful for them now. And they were a little bit more dirty to energy because I thought maybe if I just get one more, then I'll feel good about myself. Right. So these overachieving parts of me. So, you know, that's an example of how we can manifest. And so that little girl part of you lives somewhere in your body and yeah so for me yes so now ifs is a really strong body-based model which i love because it addresses a whole other dimension of us and moves us out of like the head and and into the physical being exactly right and so most commonly with ifs you know, we consider experiences a trailhead or so in IFS, how we start identifying parts, parts can show up as feelings, physical sensations, thoughts, images, impulse urges, like behaviors to overeat or whatever it might be. And so in IFS, we might take one of those trailheads and how we often start is to say, okay, let's just, you know, connect with your breath a little bit and just check in with your system and just see if you can get a sense as to where in your body you might be feeling this. I have a lot of clients who have a catastrophic part, parts of themselves where it's like they're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. So, you know, in session this morning, I had a client working with fear, you know, and it was, you know, almost like verbatim, almost every session will start with, okay, let's just check in. And where are you getting that sense of fear in your body right now? Right. And so, yeah, our parts have a tendency to be located in our body. And that really helps us get a felt sense of where they are and to begin connecting with them. And so then we end up nurturing a relationship with these parts to hear their stories mm-hmm. and to hold the space for them. You know, most of our parts are really just overpromoted little kids. You know, they're little kids who are like put in these really, really big roles kind of forced into these big roles because they felt there was no other way to keep, keep us safe. And so IFS has this beautiful transformative element to it where after we develop trust with the protective system and they grant us permission and give us consent, we then can move towards the exiles, the, the wounds. And then we help those wounds heal essentially and let go of the burdens that they've been carrying for for a lot of us, if you're, if they're, you know, if the audience is our age, you know, decades, right? Like some of my wounds are, yeah, four decades old, right? 
So yeah, IFS just has a beautiful transformative quality and it's non-pathologizing. It believes in this inherent gift that we all are born with that is immovable and that's that self-energy and everyone has that within themselves to, and gives us the capacity to heal. And like, it's something that's, I mean, I would even encourage anybody who's listening to, to try it, you know, just to Mm -hmm. sit and close the eyes and breathe and see what comes up, where the feeling is, and just kind of ask it, you know, who are you? What, what are you here to tell me? Because I find that it's, you know, something simple that I do even throughout my day, if I feel stuck. And if you're open to listening to those parts of yourself, it's like things just start to unfold. Yeah, truly. I mean, truly it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. And I can't emphasize the beauty of just slowing down and turning in, Yeah, you know, IFS, we call it the U-turn, you know, because we spend so much of our life extracepting, turning out. And if we just truly slow down and turn in and kind of say, wow, what am I noticing right now? You know, and one of the elements of self-energy, we call it the eight C's, but one of the C's is curiosity, where if we just turn in and get curious without judgment, without attachment, just like, Hey, what's going on? You know, like, Hmm, let me see what, what, you know, what's, what's going on. And knowing that a lot of our parts are these over promoted kids for any parents out there, kids want attention. I mean, we all want attention, right? So these are little, you know, these little personalities, if you will, these parts of us that are kind of starved for attention, who've been working their tails off and haven't gotten much gratitude. Mostly we parts of us hate them and we kind of shove them away or want to get rid of them when really they just want a little attention. And usually, as you just suggested, Gwyneth, when we turn in and soften towards them, they usually soften. And in IFS, we call that unblending. They give us a little bit of space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, they relent a little bit, Ah, but it's interesting because I think we spend so much of our time bracing against what these parts are going to say. And because there's a part of us that's regarding them as, you know, this catastrophic truth or that the feelings are going to be so painful. Mm -hmm. And we don't necessarily, I've noticed this about myself. Like I, I, I don't put it in the adult context of like, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's a feeling or it's a memory and it could be incredibly difficult or painful, but we can kind of create, we can be our own sort of container to hold these things. Right. If, if we recontextualize them from ourselves, but they feel so scary and they feel so urgent. So how do we, how can we regard these parts or these feelings that we have that are hard as less of a threat? Yeah. So that's a really good question. I actually think that that's why most of us don't turn in because it feels absolutely terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so the biggest thing is that notion that we all within us have that inherent radiant self-energy that has the capacity to hold us with compassion and connection and calm Mm. and when we're able to get a critical mass of that online, meaning we can say, Hey, you know, in my case, I'm 45, 
hey, fear, hey, catastrophic part that I feel in my stomach at, you know, at times. I'm 45. I've got you. You know, when we're able to really build the trust of those parts of us and let them know that someone else is in charge, that they don't have to work so hard, that's really when the shift can start happening. Mm -hmm. And so many of us don't function in that place where we're really interfacing with the world from our parts most commonly. Our parts don't know who the heck's in charge, right? They don't know. And so element of IFS is really getting them to go, oh, whoa, who are you? You know, like some of my parts, when I really started doing IFS, because for IFS for me, like I said, isn't just the model in which I pull from most dominantly in my therapy practice. It's also my personal roadmap for life. Like truly, like it's my philosophical lens in which I see the world and really show up. And so, you know, I remember when I started my personal IFS journey, I had parts that were like, who are you who couldn't even recognize me because self wasn't showing up with hardly any percentage with any regularity, Mm -hmm. you know, and the beautiful thing is that that, that relationship changes. And so that container you just mentioned starts to get built within the system, within someone's system so that Mm. parts can start trusting us, right? In the beginning, clients trust me usually more than they trust themselves, (laughs) right? You know, and so in IFS, we call that self-leadership. We are ultimately trying to help self, help the system trust the self within that we all have. Talk to me a little bit about that integration and, and what happens and what happens to the self once these parts start to congeal. I mean, do they go back into one fully integrated self or do we always have parts? We will always have parts. They just don't have to show up in the extreme ways that they have. So they get to step into their preferred roles, if you will, because in the beginning, they'll say, I have to do this job. There's no, you know, a common question in IFS is, if you didn't have to work so hard, what would you like to be doing? Mm. And in the beginning, a lot of our parts are like, what? (laughs) I, that's, that's ridiculous. I, I, I can't, I have to keep doing this job. Right. Right. And so what happens is it creates spaciousness in the system so that these parts of us can actually end up doing their preferred roles, which are usually qualities that they sort of abandoned to take on their jobs in the first place. So what would a typical trait so, be? A lot of times it might be more playfulness, more creativity, mm-hmm. presence, focus, you know, like my perfectionistic part. I mean, she seems to still really like to try to be perfect, but it's changed from her worth is contingent upon being perfect to how can I be as good as I can be in this situation? Because that feels important to me, right? So it evolves, the edges around those extreme capacities evolve mm-hmm. and these parts can really show up differently. Mm-hmm. And again, using that perfectionism as a, as one it can, you know, it relishes in creativity now in a way that it couldn't before because that's vulnerable. And so, yeah, so it creates space within the system for these parts to truly show up in their preferred roles, Mm -hmm. based on different capacities for our system. Is the idea that 
you're not re-traumatizing yourself when you're, or, or is it okay to re-traumatize yourself if you're going back into memories? How, how does that work? So now the beautiful thing with IFS is it does, IFS does not believe we have to go through that whole traumatic Rolodex in order for healing and transformation to occur. Now with our system, there is a witnessing with the IFS model. There is a witnessing phase where if a part wants to be witnessed or wants to share its experiences and it feels ready to, you've heard me use this word multiple times. IFS is all about consent and permission. Yeah. Making sure that the client's system is ready and consenting and the system will only show us what it wants to and when it's ready to. And IFS does not believe that we have to have a full exposure of all the things in order for transformation to occur. However, if parts do feel like that would be meaningful towards their healing, that is always an option. And when they're given the permission to exist Mm -hmm. and speak, like, have you seen people remember repressed things like, yeah, yeah. It's not uncommon that if a part is sharing its experiences that there could be, there could be ones that consciously their system didn't remember until that moment. And usually that usually, I mean, there, there might be parts that are horrified or like, Oh, that feels too scary. Put it back, put it back, put it back. And assuming we can get those parts to give us a little bit of space so that the target part can still share what it needs to the system, generally speaking, responds really effectively. I mean, it's almost just like we need to find a way to communicate to the deepest, most vulnerable parts of ourselves that like feelings are fine. It's okay. Like it may suck and it may be hard and, you know, it may feel absolutely terrible, but isn't it better to connect with what's really going on under the surface and let those, you know, let those be expressed? Yeah. And, you know, I think. I almost think we have to communicate that to our protective system. Right. They're the ones who are so vigilantly trying to avoid, deflect, protect from that intensity. I mean, I feel like all of my, this might be an overstatement or a generalization, but I sort of feel like all my problems, at least until I was 45 years old, came from me not wanting to feel my feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that that feels pretty accurate to me and a lot of my experiences with clients too. And then finally I was like, who gives a fuck? Like, okay, I'll cry. I'll scream. I'll beat myself up. I'll, and then I'll still wake up hopefully the next morning. And, you know, (laughs) Like I had such a, an abject fear around sitting with the feelings. And I think culturally, you know, we support that we support diversion, dopamine, you know, so oh, very much so. Well, none of us, how many of us are raised how to feel safely and effectively and to manage our emotions? We're really not right. And so, you know, like hearing what you just shared That's a lot of where the work begins, especially from an IFS perspective is let's, Mm. let's connect with that part. That's terrified to feel, let's hear about its fears and what it's afraid would happen if you felt, Mm -hmm. and then we build trust with that part. So it 
goes, oh my God, I can do this safely. Okay, wait, you're telling me, and this is a true conversation with a part, you know, like we discuss with it, like, hey, listen, if, if this gets too intense, tell us and we can help turn the volume down so that this can be done in a way that feels safe. So, you know, it's almost like trying to get some of those skeptical, scared parts buy-in, if you will. You know, at IFS, the therapist is often considered the hope merchant. We get a hold of hope for the system until your system buys in mm. and goes, oh, okay, I can trust this. I'm down with this. And so a, a big element initially is again, building trust with those parts that are scared shitless to feel because, because if they're, if they're terrified, they're going to be throwing up block after block after block so that we can't really get anywhere else. Right. So we really want to give them their due diligence and honor their fears and welcome them. All parts are welcome in IFS, even the ones that client systems abhor they're welcome, which is really beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's pretty revolutionary because I think Uh, we're taught, you know, this is bad. If you do this, you're a bad person. If you think about this, you're a bad person, whatever. And there's no allowance for the idea that experience can form these ways of relating to Mm -hmm. things that happen to you. And, you know, it's like, there's no forgiveness in any of that. There's no, there's no latitude for being human Mm -hmm. in any of that. No, yeah, there's not a lot of grace or compassion in that. And, you know, that's one of the cornerstones of self-energy is compassion. Right. Yes, compassion for others. And really importantly, compassion for us, compassion for those wounded parts, compassion for those parts of us that we're embarrassed to have, you know, because they're all welcome because they all have a really positive intent for our system. So in the context of parenting, Yeah. What do our triggers around our kids, like what are those triggers telling us about our unresolved or unheard parts? Everything. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I'm really grateful you brought this up because this is my largest growth opportunity as being a parent. (laughs) So thanks, Wendeth. That's great. I think Um, it's all of ours, isn't it? All of ours who are, those of us who are parents. So, you know, there's a term in IFS called tormentor with an emphasis, you know, like tormenting, right? A tormentor, but really emphasis on mentor. And I personally think that our children can be our largest tormentors and that they know all the things to poke at our system to make those parts of us manifest and show up in ways that might feel pretty strong or extreme. And the beautiful thing is that every time that that goes down, that's another trailhead for us to turn in and see what's showing up for us. And so, yeah, so our kids definitely really any relationship. And I think our kids in particular prove a really, really rich opportunity for us to find many a trailhead to get closer to our healing because of the rich, complex nature of parenting. The love is so big. And sometimes the absolute frustration, helplessness, whatever can equally be just as big, right? Which can feel confusing to our system, I think, you know, and then we often have parts of ourselves, you know, and Frank Anderson speaks about this really beautifully. He's a big figure in IFS 
about how all of us do have these perpetrator parts that often end up showing up similar to ways that we might have been raised or hurt in the past. And again, by perpetrator, that can just be when I try to, and I see myself doing it, whittle the straitjacket of perfection onto my daughter at times, you know, and I'm mm. like, ah, oh, that's a part of me doing this. Dang it. Stop, 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 stop. Which that is a perpetrator, you know, yeah. part of me on some level, right? I'm trying to get her to be different than her wildly playful, amazing self at times, because sometimes it feels too big to me, right? right? Parts of me. Sometimes it feels too big to parts of me. And so, yeah, our children provide fertile soil for us Mm -hmm. to do that invaluable U-turn to see what's showing up for us in response to. So in a moment, if you're triggered by your kid, Mm -hmm. you ideally you turn inward and you, what do you do? What are the steps? So the biggest, the biggest steps to me are you slow your roll. First off, you take a pause, you slow your roll. You start, and this would be not just even with your kids. This could be at work. This could be in relationship with our partners, with our friends, with political leaders, with the news. I mean, with all the stuff that we're inundated with is to slow our roll, right? Take our foot off the gas pedal because most of our parts are really good at accelerating, which makes things worse. And so take our foot off the pedal, slow our roll, slow down, turn in. And simply just notice, okay, again, with curiosity, open-hearted curiosity, what is showing up for me right now? Oh, wow, I'm feeling really helpless because my daughter's being loud right now and I've had a long day and I just need quiet. Okay, part, okay, that helpless part that just, yeah, I see you. Breathe into where you feel it and just like slow down, just really, truly do everything within our power to slow down because what that does is it gives us that ability to begin accessing self-energy. And the more self-energy we have online, the less our parts are going to be blended with our system and driving the bus, if you will. And get really good. Like I really empower everyone to get good at speaking, you know, for our parts, Mm -hmm. you know, like, wow. Hey, Lucia, part of me is really tired right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm walking a fine line. I just need some quiet. It's interesting that to the distinction of, you know, part of me is feeling part of me is tired. And then like we all, I think so much of our behavior as parents comes from wanting to protect our children from trauma. So how do we, and, and look, it's part of life, right? So we're never going to be able to protect them. And also, you know, it occurs to me sometimes when I'm observing my children going through their lives, like they're experiencing something as traumatic or really difficult. There's also a beauty to having to deal with pain and obstacle and right. So what is the language that we can help them or help teach them so that they can start to come to us with, or, cause I think it could be really helpful for my kids. I was, I've been thinking about this recently, like to contextualize these parts for them. And so like, do do you do that with your kid? Like how can we start to make them aware of this? So the first thing I want to speak to, because it, it feels like there's two little mini paths for me to go on with this question. The first thing I want to speak to is obviously creating safety, allowing your children to know that they can come to you regardless. Right. right? Right. And 
even if we screw that up because parts of us get blended and get up in our tree and get all sorts of funky with whatever they show up with, that they still feel safe, right? Because even if we screw it back, screw it up, you know, like we get a circle back and repair and go, God, that was so hard what you just shared with me. And I'm sorry. Whew, that was hard for me, man. And I wish I would have listened more open-heartedly, right? So the biggest thing is creating safety so that they feel that they can come to us. That's the number one, in my, in my opinion, the number one kind of prerequisite, knowing that bad things happen to good people every day. And our kids are not exempt from that, that we want to be able to give them that foundation of trust and safety that you can come to me. I've got you. Right. So we're creating that safe attachment point for them. And then the next thing is, yeah, truly, I think educating our, our children on this notion that none of us are one dimensional. Mm-hmm. We have so many dimensions and what you're feeling and what you're experiencing is totally fine. Let's try to speak for that versus owning it all, you know? And so, yeah, my daughter will speak for parts of herself and, you know, she's eight, you know, like mommy, a part of me is so angry right now. She wants to slam the door. Okay, cool. What else can she do right now? Like, what does she need? You know? And so I think us modeling for it, and that's not even something I necessarily taught my daughter. She just picked up on the language I use, right? You know? And so, and I mean, I screw it up all the time. So please, I don't want you or anyone else to think that I've got this so perfectly dialed. And it's just, it's really cool to see when we model this sort of language for the people in our life, they pick up on it. You know, this parts thing is not really any, I mean, it's amazing and it's truly revolutionary as you said, and I believe that wholeheartedly, but we've been talking to ourselves since the time, you know, since the inception of time. It's just, usually it's parts on parts talking, right? And so we're really just trying to change the narrative and have self translate for our parts and communicate for our parts and with our parts. Thank you for this beautiful talk. I learned so much. Thanks for tuning into my conversation with Amy Crawford. You can learn more about her work through her website, amyleecrawford.com. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.